So where we're going to read this morning is just going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. That'll be the text that we read together, but we're aiming to cover 10, 11, and at least some of 12. We'll probably come back to 12. Uh, we'll see. 2 Samuel chapter, I'm already walking it back, aren't I? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Let's read this together. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Lord, we do thank you, O gracious father, for meeting with us already today. We thank you for the grace upon grace that... You've already given to us through your son, Jesus Christ, by the work of your spirit, as we have already heard the words of Jesus Christ, sung, read, prayed, and now preached. Father, we pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would be transformed from one degree to another. Would you make us more like your son, that we might indeed walk as children of light, We would walk in the way of wisdom, not as the unwise, as we read from Ephesians 5. Would you help us to that endeavor? You know, Father, our weakness better than we do. You know how easily our hearts are deceived, how easily we adopt the ways of the world. Would you speak through your word today in such a way that we are brought to conviction of our sin, that we are encouraged by your faithfulness, that we are stirred up to love and good works. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, if you're, if you're new here or uh, you're a guest of ours, after spending a whole lot of time in 2 Samuel 7, a little bit of time in 2 Samuel 8, last week just covering 2 Samuel 9, today we jump into 2 Samuel 10 through 12, a rather large section. Uh, What we actually find in 2 Samuel 10 through 12 is reminiscent of what Lord Acton said when he wrote this. He wrote, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable presumption that they did no wrong. If there's any presumption, it is the other way against holders of power. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So David's court history, which is really what we find here, is a sad piece of evidence of Lord Acton's proposition. That's where we're at again. In chapters 9 and 10, they're often recurred to, occurred as, or referred to as David's court history. They record in some detail that portion that leads to the succession of David's throne by his son Solomon. And so, so really, 2 Samuel 9 through 20, they're all one literary unit. Uh, In fact, one scholar uh, calls this section of scripture the earliest and greatest example of Hebrew historiography. 
Dr. Pfeiffer wrote back in 1948, he said, whoever wrote the early source in Samuel is the father of history in a much truer sense uh, than Herodotus uh, half a a millennium later. As far as we know, he created history as an art, a recital of past events dominated by a great idea. David's biographer was a man of genius. Without any previous models as guide, he wrote a masterpiece unsurpassed in historicity, psychological insight, literary style, and dramatic power. That's a nice thing to say about the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Um, Most scholars agree. And, And the reason I say that at the outset is because I think we're prone to miss that as we read this account. Uh, In these passages, what we really find is one of the most brilliant narratives of antiquity. Uh, That is part of the reason I found it necessary to to read 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 12 or for us to study that this week. They form a single unit. Uh, We find at the outset David sending an envoy to Hanun, the son of Nahash, and and a battle with the Ammonites that dominates chapter 10. Well, chapter 12 is really the conclusion of that battle as Joab takes Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonites. Yet it's, it's used literarily to, to tell the story of the dusk of David's kingdom and the approaching night we will find dominating this court history. By that, I mean David's specific role in the kingdom of God as it's revealed in redemptive history, not the kingdom itself. And so let's think about it in those terms if we can. What we're doing here is we are about to enter David's night. In fact, chapter 10, what it really tells us is uh, David's night descends. It's a picture of uh, the ice on the ground starting to crack. I don't know if you know this living in Florida, but other places up north, it can get so cold that the ice actually freezes over on lakes and stuff. And people like put these skates on it and they move. It's weird, I know. Um, We don't experience that in our travel. But the reality is, if you've ever seen it in movies or been up there in the north, you know that if the ice starts to crack around you, it's very, very dangerous because you know you're about to fall. But really what chapter 10 is, is we see a picture of the ice around David starting to crack and his night is descending. In fact, as we approach chapter 10, we have to recall that this whole literary unit actually began last week in chapter 9 with what we would call high noon, so to speak. You remember how nice that story was last week? With the glory of chapters 5 and 8 shining on the kingdom of David as we see him raising up the shamed Mephibosheth and bringing him to the seat of honor, seated among princes. Well, well listen, that... That Mephibosheth event, it really serves as a prelude to the rest of this literary unit. And therefore, it really serves as a contrast. I brought that out some, a little bit last week in regards to Mephibosheth. And remember, David's son, Absalom. But, but we'll see, it's the light in chapter 9 that makes the dark so dark in chapters 10, 11, and 12. It's almost as though sitting in the full light of the sun, you walk into a dark room and you can't see a thing. That we experience in Florida, right? What happens in chapter 9 allows chapter 10 and 11 to assault the senses in such a way that we are left groping for the light. Chapter 10 is actually connected to chapter 9 by the word we looked at last week, the Hesed love of God. That when David says, I will show him kindness, he's using the same word phrase there. Here again, he's attempting to show kindness with another son for the sake of the father. 
This time, it's not Mephibosheth and Jonathan, but Hanun for the sake of Nahash. In 1 Samuel 11, that Nahash also was ruler of Ammonites. He attacked Jabesh-Gilead. After besieging the land of Jabesh-Gilead, the people of that land said, Okay, you win. We'll serve you. We don't want to fight. And his response was, Okay, you will serve me, but only after I gouge out your right eye and disgrace all of Israel. Well, the apple didn't really fall far from the tree. Because we notice, if you read in chapter 10, what Hanun's response was to David's envoy, David's attempt at peace. Hanun takes half their beard, which for Justin is just a tragedy when he read that. I know, um, he wept. Uh, half their garments, and he disgraces not only the envoy, but all of Israel. We might even say he disgraces David himself. In fact, that's really the first crack we see. In, in chapter 10, we see David's dark, uh, darkness descend, his night descend, by seeing a foreshadowing of shame. That's what we see first and foremost in chapter 10. We see a foreshadowing of the shame that is to come. There is shame that's heaped upon David's messengers who came representing David. The language is clear. In the immediate context, this functions to foreshadow the greater shame that is about to fall upon the house of David. Chapter 10 contains three distinct literary units, verses 1 through 5, 6 through 14, and 15 through 19. And in the first, David's men are humiliated. In the second, Joab is actually sent to deal with humiliation. And in the third, David finally shows up and defeats the enemy. But notice, there is almost certainly a record of events. This right here is really just summarizing what already happened in chapter 8. I point this out because as we've been preaching through this and reading through this, 1st and 2nd Samuel, we must remember the author is not primarily concerned with chronology, telling the story in order. He uses the content for thematic reasons more than he does chronological accuracy. And so all of this on the surface in chapter 10 seems to end well. As, as Joab defeats the Ammonites and then the Ammonites call from help and David defeats both the Ammonites and the help they called for. But again, what the author, I believe, is doing is pointing to those subtle cracks in the ice and the foundation of David's character that are about to become massive, gaping canyons. I've already mentioned the first way the author commits this by foreshadowing the shame heaped upon David's messengers. But notice, secondly, there's something else that's introduced in chapter 10 that's very important as we see David's character start to descend. And that is, we see a hint of complacency. Uh, there's a hint of complacency that's introduced in 2 Samuel chapter 10. The Ammonites become a stench in David's nose. So his response to that is he sends Joab and the mighty men while he presumably holds down his couch. In chapter 11, this complacency is going to be the occasion of the horrible, wicked atrocities against the Lord and his sheep. Notice, by the way, if you, in 2 Samuel 5 through 8, we went through all those battles. They depict battle scenes as well. But in those battle scenes, David is clearly the one leading out and bringing in. In chapter 5, against the Philistines, throughout chapter 8, against all of Israel's enemies. This section, chapters 10 through 12, begin and end not with David leading out and bringing in, but with Joab leading out and bringing in. 
Joab is the one encouraging the men. In fact, listen to how Joab is actually more faithful in this sense by reading chapters 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. This is what Joab says. It says, then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. See, what we notice here as we've been going along the narrative is David is already in subtle ways starting to look like the kings of the nations, isn't he? This is how the kings of the nations operate. They send out their general to do their fighting for them. So a slight shadow appears and in the shadow, David begins to look a lot less like Yahweh than the way he's described in Deuteronomy 20 and 23 as he goes out with Israelites in the midst of their battle. Finally, I want to look at one more crack in the ice when it comes to David's night descending and that is this ominous send motif is introduced. This This send idea, in fact, if you read it this week, I hope you saw how many times this word send is used in chapters 10 through 12 over and over again. It's an ominous note. It's important. It shows up in chapter 10 and it shows up nine times in chapter 11. And as one scholar explains it, quoting, he says, it reflects the deliberate maneuvering for power. In other words, the king of the nations send. It's what they do. They wield their power from their own glory and their sending was the deliberate maneuvering that was contrary to the kingdom of God. So when sin begins to dominate the narrative, if we understand the rest of the story, our hearts begin to sink. The shadows begin to set. Chapter 10 introduces the deep, dark hues of sunset that in chapter 11 will become night. When David will send his men to take Uriah's wife and then send Uriah to his death exercising his ill-conceived moral prerogative. So we have the foreshadowing of shame in chapter 10. We've got the hint of complacency born of a royal haughty heart in contrast to Joab's faithful leadership. And finally, we've got this sin motif introduced. In the end of chapter, in the end of this chapter, in chapter 10 though, there's peace. So Okay, maybe our eyes have deceived us. Maybe there are no cracks in the ice and David's night is not descending. Maybe everything is going to be okay after all. Dun, 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 right? (laughs) Chapter 11. And like I said, this is a literary masterpiece. Chapter 11, we see not only did David's night descend, but now we see David's night falls. And you know, I'm so glad. I know I take forever to go through books that's a, that's a legit complaint you can have towards me. That's okay. Uh, but one of the reasons I'm thankful we spent this much time looking at how much David typifies, shows us a picture of Christ through the first nine chapters, is we recognize the heinousness of what's committed here in chapter 11. The honored does a shameful thing while the shameful one does honorable things. In fact, the first thing I want to look at as we look at David's night falling here is we have to keep in mind who David is. David is the honored one. We see that over and over and over again. We have seen that. David is the honored one. He has been highly exalted. He has been honored in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Israel. But this honor 
is not, should not, and cannot be inconsistent with humility. In fact, we always go back to, to, to Deuteronomy 17 when we're talking about the, the kings, right? Because there's that very brief section in Moses' giving of the law on the plains of, of Moab that offers instruction of kingship. And, and in that instruction in Deuteronomy 17, remember what we read in verses 19 and 20. It says this about the king and the law. It says, and it shall be with him, that is the Torah, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Why? That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left hand. See, there's a connection between the two. There's a connection in despising the word of the Lord. A man raises up his heart against his brothers. And in a man raising up his heart against his brothers, he is therefore despising the word of the Lord. Remember, David's honor, it was a, it was a gift of grace. It was on account of the said loving kindness. And it was not the result of his own strength. That is made abundantly clear throughout all of Samuel. Particularly in the very beginning, at at David's calling from the pasture, he's clearly not doing this out of his own strength. The Lord calls him, anoints him, he puts a spirit upon him, the spirit of God comes upon him, and, and though he's the smallest of all his brothers, he defeats Goliath. Not because he's the most skilled fighter in all of Israel, but because the Lord is with him and the battle belongs to So it is also, as he runs from Saul, remember Saul had the numbers, Saul had the army, Saul should have caught him, but the scriptures made it clear that it was the Lord who protected him so that he would not be given into Saul's hand. The scriptures just pound this home to us all the way throughout. David is exalted, he makes this covenant there in 2 Samuel 7, remember we looked at that with David, and and then here we are, just a couple chapters later, and it's like David didn't hear any of it. David has been raised up and honored above his brother, but the derived power has gone straight to his head, corrupting him completely. And the highly honored David, the man after God's own heart, does one of the most shameful, despicable, appalling things that's recorded in the entire Bible. Like, like, really, you search the scriptures and, and next to Eve taking that bite, it's, it's hard to find a more atrocious act than this one. In fact, that's one of the things we really see here that makes this so atrocious is, is David, in doing this, he's acting contrary to his primary kingly characteristic. It's one of the things I want you to note here about David's nightfall uh, falling is, is David acts contrary to his primary kingly characteristic. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to consider here in chapter 10 and particularly chapter 11, why is David not leading his army? I, I honestly, I've heard the arguments saying that, that this is not really a clue that David's not doing the right thing. I just don't get them. I don't get the arguments against saying this is a clue that David is already sinning and not doing the right thing. And the reason is, it's because the first kingly characteristic mentioned by the elders back in 2 Samuel 5 is that even in the days of Saul, was it not you, David, who actually led us out and brought us in from battle? 
That's actually an echo, by the way, from Numbers, where, where Moses pleads with the Lord to not leave Israel like a sheep without a shepherd, but instead they must have someone who leads them out and brings them back in. My, my point is David reclining on his couch while Joab leads out and brings in is contrary to that first, that primary kingly characteristic that's mentioned of David. He, he's not shepherding Israel. And therefore, we already know that there's trouble in River City. The next verse tells the rest of the story. David sees a woman with a pleasing appearance. She was beautiful to behold. In fact, if you see that in your scripture, beautiful to behold, just whoop, circle that. That's not the sound a circle makes, but it is today. Whoop, just circle that uh, because it is very, very important that we see this. Whoop, is that the one? Yeah, okay. He sins and takes her despite the explicit warning that this is another man's wife. And, and in this case... What he really does is he's already revealing himself to be worse than some of the worst enemies in the scripture. In fact, I couldn't help but to notice the parallels between David and Pharaoh this week. And so I'm going to use Pharaoh as an example. He, he shows himself to be worse than Pharaoh. That word beautiful that we whoop, circled, uh, it's, it's translated beautiful in verse 2. The woman was very beautiful to behold. It's really the idea of appearance or sight or vision. It's the same word used of Sarah, or Sarai at that time. Remember, Abram himself uses it as he asked her, would you please lie to Pharaoh and tell him that you're my sister? Why? Because you have a very nice appearance. So also, Bathsheba has a very nice appearance. David, again, I'm going to argue, is acting like an Egyptian. Just like Pharaoh, David takes the woman in desirable appearance. Just like Pharaoh. You're meant to see it this way, by the way. David takes the woman in desirable appearance. As a matter of fact, though, David is worse than Pharaoh. Because you remember that story? Pharaoh actually returned Sarai as soon as he discovered he had another man's wife. Here you see a horrible, twisted reversal. David actually finds out it's another man's wife and then takes the one in desirable appearance. I mean, if you're not familiar with Old Testament historical narrative, you may miss the fact this is a literary tool that the, the Lord often uses to demonstrate the depth of his own people's sin. We usually see something like this in Genesis. Something occurs from Genesis and the nations just act in a horrible, despicable way. It's not always in Genesis. We find it later. Israel's clearly doing the exact same thing. An obvious example for us is, is Sodom. Everyone knows what happened and transpired in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was wicked and disgusting. But what a lot of people don't know is that Israel actually acted in the exact same way in Judges 19. You had the, the tribe of Benjamin committing this Sodomite sin. You have the recapitulation of that story initially about Sodom, now about Israel. In church, we find this over and over and over again. Often, by the way, what's interesting is you find this recapitulation, some previous sin, following some clear declaration of God's steadfast love for a person or his people. So, so Abram, in Genesis 16, listens to his wife and takes Hagar as a recapitulation of a sin that Adam commits in the garden. But this Abram, surely he is faithful no. In fact, that's the point of the Bible. There is but one faithful character. His name is Yahweh. He is the only one who is faithful throughout the entire redemptive story. Trimper Longman III, which I just 
could have said, not said his name, but that's a really cool name. Trimper Longman III actually points out that David is further depicted as Pharaoh when he executes his three-phased plan of progressing ruthlessness to deal with this problem. Just like Pharaoh, this is what David does. He executes his three-phased plan of progressing ruthlessness to deal with this problem. And that's, that's really important. Because devising plans means this is not something that just caught David off guard. Not in any way, shape, or form. This is something he actually thought and planned out in his mind. See, remember Pharaoh's problem was the Hebrews. They were growing in number and population at the beginning of Exodus. And how did he deal with it? Well, for starters, he oppressed them with heavy labor. And when that didn't work, it actually backfired. They were more productive in every way, right? Pharaoh hatched another plan. The midwives were ordered to execute the male sons of the Israelites. When they side with Yahweh and lie to Pharaoh, he executes his phase three. Okay, all the Egyptians now are to participate in taking the male newborn babies of Israelites and throwing them into the Nile. Well, David does a very similar thing here. In fact, his, his first plan is to call Uriah back. Deceive him into laying with his wife so, so it looks like it's his child. When that doesn't work, what does he do? You've got to get a little bit more ruthless. You know what you do? Get the man drunk. Lower his inhibitions. Then surely he will lay with his wife. When Uriah's faithfulness proves to far outshine David's faithfulness, you've got to go to phase three. You got no choice but to execute the problem, to send by his very hand the very letter that will bring about Uriah's death. I would also point out here there is a there's a horrible and wretched irony as this plan unfolds. Since it was Saul who once attempted to kill David by the hand of the Philistines, in every way David in this chapter is being depicted as a Pharaoh, a Saul. Pick your king like the king of the nations. Now, David is deploying tactics to deal with his potential threats to his kingdom. And David is now found to be relying on the sword. The final analysis, it would just appear that even David's heart is deceitful above all things. Now, remember, this is crucial. David, or any prince of God's people, has one primary job. This is really the point. You have to understand this to appreciate what is transpiring here. What was David's primary role as king? David's primary role is to bear the image of his father, Yahweh. That is David's primary role right here and now. His primary role, by the way, it's not the protection of Israel. Yahweh has that covered. He's proven his faithfulness in order to do that. His primary role is not even legislation. Yahweh's got that covered. What's the king to do then? He's got one primary role, and listen to this, it's important. That is, as Israel looks at the king, they are to see Yahweh. He's to reflect the character and quality of their God. And if you just really sit with that for a second, you understand that this is far worse than simply the adultery. As we evaluate it, yeah, adultery is wrong. You shouldn't do it. David shouldn't have done it. He is a bad guy. It's worse than that. David actually conspired to kill a man. Man, that is, that is so wrong. What a bad guy. He shouldn't have done that. It is so much worse than that. 
Listen, Israel is supposed to look at David and see Yahweh. That is, by the way, this is recorded history. All of this is being brought to light in Israel. Israel looks at David and instead of seeing Yahweh, they don't see Yahweh. Who do they see? They see the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies. David in this chapter, if you can hear, is actually an anti-Christ. That's crazy. It gets even crazier though. In fact, I want you to go back to that word we circled. I forgot the noise already. But I want you to go back to that word we circled of beautiful or appearance. This word translated here as beautiful, it's actually used in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. So so remember what happens there. The Lord sends Samuel. He interviews the sons of Jesse. Samuel sees the eldest son and he says, oh man, God, I know why you called me here. I mean, look at this dude. He's a stud. The Lord uses that opportunity to teach an incredibly important lesson. It is that the Lord does not judge by appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Appearance, you want to guess? Same word in the Hebrew. This could not be more contrary to David's father. David is doing exactly what the Lord said he does not do. He is looking upon the appearance. By the way, you want to know what else has this appearance? Every single tree in the Garden of Eden. The trees the Lord created. All of them, it says, which must include the tree of knowledge of good and evil, had this appearance. So to look at them was delightful. They held out for Adam, David, and for all of us what promises to please and satisfy. So, okay, now we have to ask the question, how are we to distinguish? If if all the trees have this appearance, how are we to discern or to know? How are we to distinguish between that which actually brings satisfaction and that which won't, friends? It's the word of the Lord. It's the instruction of our Father. It's what Adam and Eve rejected. Not by eyes that see physically, but the eyes that see by faith. We hear and believe the word. And here's the heart of the problem then. David despises the word of the Lord here. Or let me put it this way. David isn't just like Pharaoh. David's like Adam. He is in the garden judging independently the word of the Lord. And so he turns out not to be just like Pharaoh. But David's also just like Adam. David disdains. That's the word you're looking for to fill in. The word of the Lord. He does. And it's tragic. David disdains The word of the Lord. This is exactly what the Lord says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 9 when he's confronted. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? The Lord's not looking upon the appearance of things. The Lord's looking at truth, righteousness, and goodness. Seeing all things as they really are. We don't. Adam didn't. Adam didn't and he was happy and holy. You sure are happy and holy. I mean, neither am I, just to be clear. But don't you see? Our hearts, above all things, are deceitful. Our eyes are deceptive. We look upon the appearance of a thing, and our temptation is to make a judgment. Is it good? Is it bad? How will you judge? 
I mean, do you think that you're stronger than David? Do you think you're more morally upright that surely you won't fall into the same temptation that he did? No, friends. We have to hear and believe the word of the Lord. It has to renew our minds. It has to change the way we think. It has to speak into every single decision we make. In other words, listen, if you get on social media and you're making judgments about the appearance of things, how are you coming to those judgments? Friends, your heart is deceitful above all things. If your mind is not being renewed by God's word and you are not by his grace having the word of Christ dwell within you richly, if every thought is not being taken captive according to Christ, if he is not being made to rule in your heart, if you're not honoring him above all things, if you're not walking in the spirit, you will judge like David according to the appearance of things. You will see that which is delightful and you will partake finding in the end that it is sand in your mouth. An empty thing that brings no satisfaction. Makes me think of the screw tape letters. Um, If you know me, you know I just adore C.S. Lewis and his books. Um, If you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, this is going to be a little little weird. It's it's a book by C.S. Lewis and in it, One demon is speaking to another demon, okay? So just get the context here. A higher demon is actually counseling a novice demon in the work of demon tree. And so the the higher demon says this to the lower demon. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, who's the enemy in this context? God. Remember, these are stories, these are are demons speaking. Think about that. In a sense, on the enemy's ground, I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the national, natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain And it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. And remember, father in that context again is Satan. It just stuck out to me because it so well describes what David, what happens to David in chapter 11. And we're going to see by the end of chapter 12 that the shadow of shame is already falling upon the kingdom. But what happens is we're no longer seeing the image of our father in David. But we're seeing the image of the enemy, Satan himself. And friends, it's disturbing to say the least. But here's what chapter 12 really teaches us. And it's so encouraging. Because as it is the case throughout the scriptures, David's unfaithfulness serves to emphasize God's faithfulness. It does. You have to pay attention to this because if if you've been with us through 2 Samuel, this just 
pours out to you, just rings out to you. We're going to hear these words to David, among which others we'll take up next whenever we come back again and do this. Um, Chapter 12, verse 13, these words are just, whoo. This is what the Lord says to David. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What makes that so powerful and significant? Here's what makes it so powerful and significant. If you, if you know the story of First and Second Samuel, that's exactly what we've seen so far. Remember Eli? Eli wasn't faithful. Eli had two sons who were unfaithful. David himself is actually going to have two sons who are unfaithful. The first is going to assault his sister. The second one is going to kill that son and attempt to overthrow the kingdom. Yet David's kingdom remains. Eli's sons receive punishment and die in a single day. Saul is unfaithful. He and his sons perish in a single day. Here you have David demonstrating the same level of transgression. And instead of perishing, he hears the words, I've put away your sin, you shall not die. Like that may not seem like a whole lot to you, but it's everything in the course of First and Second Samuel. In other words, what I've sworn will not be deterred because of your sin or any person's sin. The salvation is being demonstrated here. The steadfast love that is being promised is greater than all the sin in the world. I mean, in the fullness of the time where there was one who came, the eternal Son of God himself. Don't miss, by the way, how even David in his Antichrist mode prepares our hearts for the Christ. Who came not to send and take, but to give his life, to lay it down as a ransom for many. It's the contrast we see here in David that causes our hearts to cry out. Well, well, how then can a just and holy God put away my sin? How can he put away David's sin lest we die? Well, praise God for Romans 3. In Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a wrath appeasing sacrifice by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus friends Jesus doesn't lift his heart above his brothers instead his heart is lowly He invites all those who are weak and broken to come find rest. He doesn't take and sin as the king of the nations, but instead he takes our sins upon himself, giving in exchange every spiritual blessing in himself. That's incredibly good news. And I'm going to conclude with this. I praise God for just giving me this through his word. I almost missed it. In Isaiah 53, 2, we find that word we... Circled one more time. Isaiah 53, if you know, it's the suffering servant who came to take upon himself our transgression. In fact, it is the Father's will to crush this suffering servant that he might bring many sons to glory so that the unrighteous would be made righteous. And in that, we find this word once more. Except, we find that Jesus lacked it. Isaiah 53, 2 says, There is no beauty appearance that we should desire him so let me just encourage you you see all those pictures of jesus where he's the one that's just got the really good hair flow going you know and he's like brighter than everybody else and he's ripped and you know all the disciples are like grungy looking fishermen no jesus didn't have no appearance like that 
In fact, remember, why, why did Judas need to portray Jesus with a kiss? It's because the Pharisees couldn't tell him apart from the other disciples. He was plain. He looked plain. There was no beauty in him. That is, in our flesh, in our human perspective, there was nothing delightful about the appearance of Jesus. Why is that significant? Because it's really the point. Friends, what we see is not real. (laughs) The things that your heart desires, they are not satisfying. What we are prone to sell our souls for will never satisfy. And yet there is one who had nothing in his appearance that was attractive to us. And in him is everything that will satisfy our souls forever and ever. So look to him. Trust him. And find peace. Take hold of the promise that I've taken your sins away. You shall not die. (laughs) Praise God for his said loving kindness to those Davids in here, like myself, whose hearts are prone to wander, whose hearts are prone to look at the appearance. And discern this is good and right apart from the instruction of the Lord. Would you stand together as we pray this morning? Gracious Father, you know better than we how easily we are deceived. Lord, how easily our hearts are raised above our brothers and sisters. How easily we look at the appearance of a thing and judge whether it is good or evil. All the while, we're showing you how much we despise your word. Father, we ask that you would convict us of our sin and and that you would cause the word of Christ to dwell in us more richly. that, That we might delight in your instruction. That we might see him as delightful, him who came in the appearance that was not attractive to us. And as you renew our minds according to the truth, would we see things as they actually are? And would we drink more deeply at the well of all that you have given to us in every spiritual blessing through your son Jesus? That we might be a people who overflow with gratitude, giving you honor and thanks as we desire more to be made whole in your light. Father, would you be pleased to build us up into our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect image bearer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.